Welcome to the sermon audio for English Ministries at Tri-City Chinese Christian Church. We meet Sundays at 11.30 a.m. at the Kyle Center at in Port Moody, British Columbia. This week we are finishing our series in Galatians by looking at Galatians chapter 6. Well, we are wrapping up uh, the Galatians series by looking at the last chapter today. So if you want to turn your Bible apps or your Bibles, if you have them, to Galatians chapter 6, very end. Uh, that is where we are going to be this morning. So the first um, chapter of Galatians was really an introduction Paul is making, both of himself, or I guess reintroduction. Uh, they already knew him because he planted the churches there. Um, but him chatting uh, and talking about his authority as an apostle, and then he... Um, starts introducing some of the things he's going to talk about throughout the, the rest of the letter. Chapters 2 to 4 is Paul really laying out a lot of theology. And so we talked over and over again about salvation coming by faith rather than by the law and the uh, circumcision not being necessary despite these Judaizers coming and saying the Gentiles need to be circumcised to complete their faith. Paul talking about how it's two different systems, the system of faith and a system of law. Um, and so that's most of the, he's laying out that theology for chapters two till four. Then last week, Pastor Joe talking about Galatians five is where Paul starts getting into more of the practical application. So the whole reason that the Judaizers were saying circumcision is needed and follow the law was because the Gentile Galatians have come to faith in Jesus and now they're like, now what? Like, what does that look like for our lives? Um, particularly in ethics and morality, how are we supposed to live? And so the Jewish Christians, who are the Judaizers that are being called here, are saying, hey, follow the law. This is going to guide you in morality. So then chapter 5 comes and Paul talks about, instead of following the law, it's now having the Spirit dwell inside of you. And the Spirit is now guiding you in morality, not these words uh, that were written in stone back in the day and now that you have on your scrolls that you're reading in your synagogues it's actually the spirit that's guiding you now uh, and then we come into chapter six where paul is going to lay out uh, more of the practical application of these things and give some examples of what this looks like in their community life so we're going to start looking here at uh, verse one Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone, without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who refuses, who, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who, be, who belong to the family of believers. So Paul's carrying over from chapter 5 here. 
Uh, and at the end of chapter 5, he lists out his list of the fruit of the spirits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then coming into now chapter 6, he's saying what those fruits look like in life in the community. And so first he brings a brief mention of uh, what it looks like and what to do when someone who's a member of the church community is caught in sin. So again, he's approaching that morality thing that they're trying to figure out what that looks like. And he's saying how it requires a balance. And you see some of the fruit of the Spirit come in the interactions with the person who is approached. Uh, it's recognizing first that this person who is caught in the sin is loved deeply by God. That person is able to have their sins forgiven just as we have had our sins forgiven because Jesus has died on the cross and rose again for them just as he has for us. And so there's a call for patience and gentleness uh, when dealing with this person or talking with this person. And so the first act in accordance with this fruit of the Spirit he's talking about is seeking to restore that person. And so restoration doesn't mean just ignoring the sin and continuing to try to live as if it's not happening. Restoration is something that actually Jesus himself talks about in his own ministry in Matthew 18. Uh, and Jesus teaches, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. And so this confrontation is where we see the need for gentleness to come in. It's not coming and casting stones at this person or coming in condemnation to that person, but coming and acknowledging that they have stumbled as we all have stumbled and help them to recognize it. Because sometimes we are caught in sin or sinning and we don't even recognize that we're in it. So it might just need to be something that has to be pointed out. And then help them guide them into a proper response with it. That's where Jesus is saying, if they listen to you, by listening to you, isn't just saying, oh yes, I see what you're, doing, what you're saying, and then continuing to do that activity, the listening to you is having the proper response, which in this case is repentance, uh, which is uh, turning away is what repentance is translated in the Greek to, um, which involves both seeking forgiveness, forgiveness from God for your sin, but also if you have harmed someone else with this sinful behavior, uh, going to them and confessing it to them and seeking their forgiveness as well. And then the turning away part is turning away from that sin, walking away from it, no longer participating in that. That's what listening to you looks like when Jesus is talking about it here. And patience starts coming in if they refuse to listen to you. Jesus goes through many uh, steps to take before this kind of ultimate action is taken, though it's not really ultimate action as we'll see. He says if they continue to deny their sins, they refuse to listen to you, which could be saying, oh yes, I see what you're saying, but continuing in sin, or arguing that they are not sinning in that case. Uh, then the next step is this kind of patience is now to get a couple other people to come and approach with you. And actually getting one or two other people to come with you helps check yourself as well. Because if you have two uh, other, one or two other people coming 
to approach this person, then they also agree that they've seen that sin in that person's life. So it just means that it's not you just seeing something that's not there or stops it from being like a personal vendetta you have against someone or someone being able to accuse you of that. Because there's now at least two, uh, one or two other people who agree with what you've seen and you approach again in gentleness to bring this before them. And if they still continue to not listen, then you bring it to the church as a whole, the community as a whole now, if it gets to that step and decides to continue, then it's not just two or three people who see this in this person's life, but the entire community that has acknowledged it there, and so brings it before the person. And if the person refuses to listen when the entire community of the church comes and confronts them, then Jesus tells them to treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. There's this removal from the community but as we saw Jesus with pagans and tax collectors, he often still ate with them and offered them uh, a place in his kingdom. And so there's still that openness for restoration should they come to repent. So it's not that ultimate action of now you're excommunicated from the church forever, which is what the Catholic Church did through the years in, in church history and often more political than anything else. But uh, there's this, always this openness if repentance comes still. And so still a hope for them. And sometimes, it, it, often pagans and tax collectors, and it seems really harsh to tax collectors, um, especially nowadays tax collectors are just doing their job. But in the ancient times, tax collectors would grow wealthy because they would take more tax from people than what the Roman Empire was requiring and keep the extra for themselves. So there's that corruptedness that deceit uh, and that exploiting of people that can put them in the same category as sinners, typically. So they need to repent of that to be able to come into the community. So that's kind of what they're talking about, church discipline here. And this is where actually a church membership, when done properly, is actually beneficial to the growth of our own faith and uh, a healthy community lifestyle. By becoming a church member, you are agreeing to live by particular standards that is uh, been agreed upon by the church which is biblically based uh, and so by becoming a church member you're willing to submit yourself to the authority of of that church uh, of that community and in Mennonite Brethren circles that is the community as a whole um, not just whoever the pastor who's in charge or the deacon board who's in charge uh, and so by submitting yourself to those standards, you're also saying, hey, if I cross these standards, then I'm willing for the church to come and talk to me about them and approach me about them and help keep me on track and, and, and guide me there. And this works best within uh, church membership context because then we all have a base that we have agreed to uh, and that we're coming from. So that's one of the big benefits uh, of church membership when done properly. And there's, here's an example of how this kind of Thing plays out. There was a church before that had a, uh, a married couple who separated. They moved into separate homes. Um, but the husband of this couple pretty much moved directly into his girlfriend's home um, and lived with her. And the pastor saw this and deemed this as sin because he, this man was still, they had just separated, they weren't divorced, so he was still legally married uh, to his wife and he started with his girlfriend like a week or so after the separation had happened and was uh, living with her and then it also affected the entire community because he started bringing that girlfriend to the church where his wife was still attending they were both church members 
And so the pastor came, had a conversation with him, a coffee with him, and, and talked with him about this. And he uh, protested against uh, what the pastor was bringing before him. So the pastor grabbed a couple of deacons, and they had a, a conversation with him again, to which he acted with some hostility um, and refused to uh, repent or even discuss the issue. So there's your second step of two or three witnesses. So then uh, it was brought to the deacon board in Tyre as deacon board, a representative of the church community. So the deacon board uh, invited this person to come and chat with them about this. The person ignored all the requests. It was reached out two or three times uh, and the person refused to do so. So then the deacon board um, asked that they would no longer attend until they're willing to have that communication with the deacon board. Um, and because he was a church member, uh, the details of the situation weren't brought before the church, but just in an acknowledgement that this person has been removed from membership until willing to have a discussion. And so there was always that openness to restoration. So the pastor approached one-on-one -on -one first, refused to listen. Two or three deacons came in, two or three witnesses that agreed with the pastor's assessment, still refused to listen, brought to the deacon board as a representative of the church community, refused to attend a conversation. And so that's where the ask not to, to no longer attend came from. And so one of the reasons that this church discipline is was important because we it cannot let sin take root within the church community. And Paul warns that in his passage. He says, but watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. And this warning that he gives to them is actually directed to the person who's doing the uh, confrontation and gentleness and, and love in order to see this person restore. If that person has identified that sin in that person's life and can still be tempted by it when they're coming to confront it, then the community in which this sin is taking place or is, is happening in front of can easily be tempted by that as well. It's easy to look at it and justify their own sin. If this person continued to brought, bring their girlfriend while they're still legally married wife also attended the church and church leadership did nothing to address it, then people can easily see, well, well, the leadership doesn't have anything to say about this, so they can start justifying their own sin. I'm not doing something as bad as that, so I must be fine kind of idea. So this is the importance of where this kind of church discipline comes in. And so it comes out of as a follower of Jesus and living in the freedom and the guidance of the Spirit, we ought to love one another and God. And in loving one another, we call out the sin in each other's lives, recognizing sin's power to destroy our sister or our brother who is stuck in that power, and seek to restore them into the community. It's out of love that we carry one another's burdens, but at the same time, there's this call to personal responsibility for ourselves. And Paul is again talking about in this kind of confrontation context. First, he's warning them about a superiority complex. It's easy to fall into a judgmental state uh, about the other person's sin. Obviously, there's some judgment involved to see it as sin, but it becomes as a, um, well, I don't do anything as bad as that. And so we can justify our own selves. 
or by helping someone overcome uh, this sin in their lives, these temptations, maybe we develop a savior complex where we're the ones who have come in and we are the ones who have helped bring this light to this person's eyes and help them restore themselves and save them from their destruction so we have saved them from this. But we're not to have any of those attitudes. Paul says that if anyone thinks they are something they are not, uh, so that um, savior complex, or without comparing themselves to someone else, that kind of superiority complex. So it's with a humbleness that we approach. There's this uh, a news story I heard where this kind of personal responsibility uh, and carrying each other's, or more this personal responsibility comes in that uh, in Russia there's this woman who was suing McDonald's because she was trying to do a, a religious fast, but she saw a commercial for a Big Mac on TV and it was just so tempting that it forced her to break her fast. And so she is suing McDonald's uh, for their commercials being too good, I guess. And so there's that idea of she's taking away all personal responsibility from herself and putting all the burden on McDonald's for her religious fast. Uh, so there's an example of that for you there. So this whole thing is what, okay, what does it look like to live by the Spirit? And the principle of living by the Spirit is really laid out in the second paragraph when it comes down to sowing what you, or reaping what you sow. And Paul uses his classic comparison of flesh versus the Spirit. So sowing in the flesh is sowing in sin here, and the only thing that comes from that is death and destruction. But it's not just that, because previously in Galatians he had aligned circumcision with an act of the flesh. And so by investing in this old system of the law, which requires circumcision, you're sowing in the flesh in that way because you're trying to come to the old system that says if you do all of these things and you can get salvation, you're earning your own salvation. If you're sowing that, you're only going to reap death because you're trying to get the law to do something that it was unable to do. But sowing the Spirit is seeking to be filled with the Spirit and seeking its guidance in your life. By trying to follow the Spirit's promptings, uh, you will end up loving your neighbor and loving God, and from that you start reaping eternal life. And you're relying on God, not just for guidance, but for salvation, and trusting that Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension is enough to give you salvation and not trusting in your own works it's a different kind of mindset instead of saying okay i'm going to do this this and this and then i get saved it's now god has done this this and this for me and so out of that love and thankfulness i do these things these more moral things these ethics and it's where the fruit of the spirit also comes in by you seeing those fruits of the spirit coming up in your character and your behavior, it's a sign that the Spirit is working. It's that reaping part of it. The fruits that you are getting out of it is being more joyful, more loving, more peaceful, more patient, and so on and so on. So reaping in the Spirit brings about those things and brings eternal life, but reaping in the flesh brings dis destruction, including trying to earn your own salvation through the law. And then we come into the last portion of the book of Galatians. And Paul says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. 
Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. That they want you to be circumcised that you may boast about your circum that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. So Paul closes out the letter in his own hand. And during these times, it's normal for whoever's the author of the letter is actually just dictating it out to a scribe who is writing it down. And often in Paul's letters, he names the scribe as his letter of Paul from, or greetings from whoever ends up being the scribe. I don't think he does it in Galatians here, though. But here he takes down the pen himself, and the large letters has caused much speculation of, oh, Paul must have poor eyesight, mostly because he gets beaten all the time for his persecutions. Uh, and so he has to write large in order to be able to see it. But here Paul is really, he's writing in his own hand to show that it is him writing. It's not a forgery, not someone who's saying that they are Paul, but aren't Paul, and trying to use his authority to say these things. And he begins to give a personally a summary of what he's tried to talk about throughout the letter, uh, with a purpose of undermining the authority that these Judaizers have claimed in Galatia. And you can tell that he's really focused on this issue of circumcision because he says it a billion times in that short little paragraph. This is first the only reason that uh, these Judaizers are trying to get the Galatians to be circumcised is to avoid persecution. If you look at Paul's time in Galatia through uh, the book of Acts in chapters 13 and 14, it is the Jewish people who are constantly making things difficult for him. In the Galatian city of Pisidian Antioch, Acts says the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So Paul goes from that city to a different Galatian city, Iconium, and he preaches in the synagogue there. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. From there, Paul goes to Lystra and performs a miracle, uh, and it makes the crowd think that he's like the avatar of Zeus, and his missionary partner Barnabas is the avatar of Hermes, and they try to offer a sacrifice to them, thinking they're these gods. They just barely stop them from making a sacrifice, and then the crowd turns. Then some Jews come from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Throughout, throughout this whole region, it is the Jew, uh, it's the same thing over and over again for Paul. He comes and he preaches about Jesus. Many people hear and believe, but those Jewish people who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah uh, grow jealous of the popularity this message is getting, and so they start persecuting Paul and trying to stop his message. And this is all the area that the Galatians are in. So these Jewish Christians come in, and try to get them to be circumcised and to follow the law, which is pretty much um, 
Judaism. And if they're circumcised, and it seems like they're actually Jewish now, they've converted to Judaism, so they won't be persecuted anymore. But Paul has said that they're, by doing so, they're throwing away their faith, so they might as well not even be considered Christians anymore. They're abandoning it. And the other sense of this avoiding persecution is uh, Scott McKnight thinks uh, that um, these Judaizers who have come in, they're from Jerusalem, that have come in to try to promote circumcision to the Galatians, that they're probably facing pressure from the conservative Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to come and correct Paul's teaching, uh, to bring the Gentile Christians uh, into following the law and being circumcised. And so they're facing this pressure from back home to be able to do this thing. But Paul again says it's not a matter of following this external law, but letting the spirit come in and transform their lives. The next thing that Paul says in here is he says, not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. So now he's calling out these Judaizers as hypocrites. Their faith is all this outward appearance like circumcision and food laws, but there's no heart in it. There's no depth. There's no sustenance. And it's the same kind of thing that Jesus is convicting the Pharisees of. Jesus calls out the Pharisees and calls them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they look pristine and beautiful, but inside they're full of death. Their words are empty and hollow because the faith behind it is non-existent. So by putting the emphasis on these external things like food laws and circumcision, they might as well be practicing uh, Judaism. They're eliminating the distinctiveness of Christianity by focusing on the law. The point is that God has come in the flesh of humanity submitting himself under this law as a good Jewish man. And he, t uh, and he comes and he actually in his life fulfills the law. And then Jesus takes on the power of of sin that used this law to bring death to humanity. And he takes this power of sin upon himself and he dies with it on the cross. And then three days later, he rises from the grave, leaving behind the power of sin in the grave and undermining the authority and the power of death over humanity. And then Jesus ascends into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father in authority and from that position and from that authority sends out the Spirit upon the people to dwell within them and to help guide them in their lives to obey God through the Spirit that moves within them rather than these words written on stone. And it's the very presence of God in their lives that helps build this compassion for other people and constantly reminds them of God's love. But the Judaizers, by stressing on circumcision and the law, are saying that Jesus' life was not good enough to fulfill the law. They're saying that by Jesus dying on the cross wasn't enough to defeat the power of sin. By Jesus rising from the grave three days later did nothing to undermine the authority of death over humanity and that Jesus' ascension didn't really give him the authority and the power. Now all these Judaizers are Jewish Christians. They wouldn't say those things, express those as their theology, 
But much like in chapter 2, when Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles because these other Jewish people were coming in, Peter would never have said that Gentiles were second-class Christians. But by him stopping eating with them, he's saying that they're not as good good enough, they're not as good as the Jewish Christians are. And so in the same way, these Judaizers wouldn't say any of those are their, um, their theology, but the way they're emphasizing the law and teaching and trying to practice it, they're saying it with their actions. They're not telling the good news of Christ, but are effectively teaching the old ways of the law. Paul is saying the Judaizers are rejecting the only thing that matters. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Another part of the reason the Judaizers are pushing so hard for the Galatians to be circumcised isn't out of necessarily a concern for them totally, but to be able to boast back home. They want to tell how many people they've converted in their circumcision. They want to tell uh, how many people they have convinced and they want to pad their stats and boost their numbers but they're boasting about things that don't matter what matters is the new creation that comes about from the spirit what matters is having the spirit in your life trying to listen to its guidance and allowing it to transform you what matters is not whether you're circumcised or not whether you read your bible every single day or how long you pray for What matters is that the Spirit is working in your life as you submit to it. And when that is the case, then the Spirit begins to flow in your life. And that reading your Bible or your prayers isn't about how often or how long you do it for, but the depth and the the power that comes from it as you rely on the Spirit in those things. And as you're relying on the Spirit and letting it transform you, that's where you see the fruits of the Spirit start coming in and you start being more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more good, more faithful, more gentle, and more self-controlled. And it's this reliance on the Spirit. Saying, Spirit, do these things in my life, not I'm going to do these things and then these things are going to come. Just seeking to follow and guide and that is what we ought to be striving for asking god to fill you daily with the spirit to spend moments in silence to become more aware of god's presence and these moments can be a couple of minutes they can be an hour just throughout your day just to remind yourself of god's presence with you because he is always with you we're just not always aware of the spirit working in our lives Asking God to build up those fruits of the Spirit in our lives. Seeking the Spirit to fill us, to work within us, and to follow its guidance. And encouraging one another. When we see those fruits evident in each other's lives, saying, hey, I've seen you become more patient to encourage one another, but the Spirit is transforming us. It's that balance of carrying one another's burdens, wanting to see one another being transformed in the spirit, wanting to see each other come more loving, more patient, more gentile, gentile, more gentle, uh, more self-controlled. And so encouraging each other when we see those things in our lives, but also taking that personal responsibility of asking those things for ourselves and seeking to follow in guidance to the Holy Spirit. 
Let's close this time in prayer. Father, we thank you that you send us your spirit. And in so doing, we aren't trying to just follow a set of laws that were written down centuries, millennium ago, but that you have a spirit that's with us here and in in the now and who can speak to us in our present and in our situations that we find today, whether that is through your Bible and it helps bring new applications to it in our life today, or whether it's your own spirit's guidings and your promptings that you are a God who moves with us in the present, not just one who is distant and speaking from the past. I pray for each and every one of us that you would pour your spirit into our lives. We would be filled with your spirit anew. We become more and more aware of its work in our lives, that we would be seeking your transformation in our lives, that we would desire those fruits to be evident in our lives, that we would feel a boldness to encourage one another or confront one another when we need to. I pray that you would give us eyes to see not just you working in our lives and those fruits in our lives, but to be able to see it in each other here and that we would be willing to speak out in encouragement when we see those things. I pray that you would continue to grow us deeper in relationship with you and deeper in relationship with one another. Open our eyes to see the ways in which you're moving in our lives this week. Let us be more and more aware of your presence as our weeks go. In Jesus' name, amen.